Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. Which Met General Manager programmed Verdi's Don Carlo in his first season, ensuring that the Met became the first house to make the less-than-popular opera part of the standard repertoire? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. Give up? It was Rudolf Bing in 1950, and that revival started the tradition of performing the opera in Italian rather than the original French. Don Carlo is Verdi's longest opera, including the ballet, it's almost four hours of music. And no other Verdi opera exists in so many authentic versions, both in Italian or in the original French. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have a historic recording from our Talking About Opera archives featuring Guild lecturer Albert Inarato. Don Carlos is the longest, most ambitious, and wide-ranging of Giuseppe Verdi's operas. It is the child of trauma in his personal life. War, intrigues, politics, personal bitterness, fanned by not-so-well-meaning friends— all contributed to the composer's mindset in the 1860s and directly or indirectly provided a background for Don Carlos. The fact that Don Carlos was commissioned and first performed at the Paris Opera meant that this most Italian of composers had in fact become something of an outsider in the current operatic world of Italy. The main reason was the cost of retaining his services. La Forza del Destino, Don Carlos, and Aida were all commissioned by wealthy foreign governments. Forza was paid for by the Russians. Aida would be paid for, exotically enough, by the Egyptians. This made Verdi fair game for Italian critics who resented his successes abroad, which included a sensational trip to London. Ironically, chief among these satirists was Arrigo Boito, who would one day write two great librettos for Verdi, Otello and Falstaff, and in fact had written the words for the cantata Verdi composed for London, the Hymn of Nations. Verdi was too tempting a target for Boito and his friends. With youthful sincerity, they questioned Verdi's relevance to Italian art. Verdi read all their articles, remembered them all, and loathed Boito and his circle, who were called the scavigliati, the messy ones. That referred to their flamboyant mode of dress. Verdi was also stung by their lampoons because there was a certain truth in them. 
He had, after all, sought to become a great international composer and had indeed succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. Like many commercial successes in the arts, Verdi had to face the implication that because he was interested in money and capable of earning lots of it, he either was untalented or a lesser artist despite his gifts. Verdi, though touchy and sometimes defensive, was proud of his success. Verdi, who had been amazingly prolific in his early years, had slowed down. There were those who thought he had largely lost interest in composing. Straponi wrote, For a long time I have been hearing him say, I don't want to write in every key. Sometimes he claimed to be very tired. And then there were politics. Verdi was less of a freedom fighter than has sometimes been claimed. Like many Italians, then and now, for that matter, he was more interested in his own region and didn't have a clear sense of Italy as a single entity, even though intellectually he was for unity. In Italy, though he took a keen interest in politics, he wanted to remain on the sideline. In 1859, northern Italians, led by the famous Garibaldi and his red shirts, won a war of independence. The Verdis admired him greatly. To the world's shock and elation... Garibaldi's bravery helped secure Sicily and Naples at the last minute. Those are the composers, and what operas, what finales, Verdi wrote to a friend. But when the smoke cleared, Verdi's position meant he was among the first to be called to stand for the new parliament. Oh, he hated that idea. As usual, there was a lot of local intrigue against Verdi, and he seems to have done his share of backstabbing. He may have been unwilling to serve, but he was totally unwilling to lose. Verdi was in Parliament from 1860 until 1865, but loathed every second of it and thought the chaos of government far worse than that of the most provincial opera house. His main initiative was a bill for government subsidy of the bigger opera houses. It failed. Returning to Verdi's career, it's interesting that he'd been offered Don Carlos already in 1850. It apparently bored him then. In the 15 years that followed, Verdi's own life experiences and his understanding of his own nature had deepened. He'd had more of a taste of real-world politics and had had his own experiences of private betrayal, worldly power, and even sexual complexity. Though these aspects of Verdi's life were played out on a modest scale, it's interesting that Don Carlos mirrors them. It's sentimental and false to suggest Verdi had to identify closely with the stories he chose and the characters he set. Yet there are elements in Don Carlos that may have inspired the composer on a subconscious level. Verdi did as little new composing in the early 1860s as he could. Verdi had had dealings with the opera in Paris and had never had a great success there. Like most Italian composers, he was uncomfortable with the formula of the so-called grand opera. Despite all that, a visit back to Sant'Agata prompted him to send mixed signals to Paris. As intended, they were read as guarded interest. The representative of the opera subtly pushed Don Carlos and reported Verdi was thrilled, though worried about the lack of spectacle, a very large part of the grand opera in Paris, and Verdi was determined to show he could write a persuasive grand opera, especially now that Meyerbeer was dead. Italian opera librettists had pillaged the playwright Friedrich Schiller in the first part of the 19th century. Verdi himself had set rip-offs and simplifications of Schiller plays. Schiller's Don Carlos is one of the most sophisticated texts Verdi ever used for an opera. 
Schiller had written Don Carlos over four years, interrupting work on it to write Cabale und Liebe, which became Louisa Miller, remember. Don Carlos was finished in 1787. It is very long, 6,000 lines of blank verse. There are many fully fleshed out characters, and the story is as complicated as some of those Spanish plays Verdi loved so much. Schiller thought of his play as a historical drama, and indeed he was professor of history at the University of Jena. Schiller was homosexual, and though neither Don Carlos nor his close friend Rodrigo, the Marquis of Poza, are identified as being sexually in love, the intensity with which their intimacy is expressed certainly suggests something of the sort may have been in the back of Schiller's mind. Of course, there really had been a King Philip, the richest and most powerful monarch in Europe. He was the king who sent the Armada, which England sank. And under his rule, Spain had colonies everywhere. His only legitimate son and heir, the Infante in Spanish, was Carlos, a hunchback and epileptic who was set aside before he died young. The real Carlos was an idiot. Philip's court was the most powerful Catholic court in the world, what was known as the sacred office led by a cardinal called the Grand Inquisitor, in his time forced Catholicism wherever it could, seeing nothing wrong with the slaughter of non-Catholic populations and the arrest, torture, and burning of people identified as heretics, which could be just about anybody. Schiller borrowed the amorous intrigues of his play from a pseudo-textbook. The deaths of both Carlos and his stepmother had given rise to a small industry of gossip. It was rumored that Carlos and his stepmother were caught having an affair. He was killed, she was poisoned. Since the real Carlos was 11 when she died, he would have had to possess more than the usual Latin sexual precocity to express a sexual interest in her. And she was so devout she was rather notorious, even in a court given to grand religious displays. It was one thing for a young queen to do her religious duty, quite another for her to bore everyone to death. Nonetheless, Verdi and Librettus would use one of these gossipy sources for some scenes in the opera. Though no doubt plenty was going on in the various bedrooms of Philip's huge, gloomy palaces, little is known for sure about the sex lives of Schiller's historical characters. Schiller used sex and love as a springboard in creating vivid characters that could make an audience care about the political themes of his work. In spite of Verdi's misgivings about the Paris Opera, he finally agreed to compose Don Carlos for the company. He arrived in Paris in the fall of 1865 to begin work with his librettists, the poet Joseph Mary, whom he had known for some time, and Camille Dulocle, who also served as an administrator for the opéra. Mary died fairly early in the process, so most of Verdi's collaboration was with Dulocle, and the two worked closely on the opera, with Verdi, as usual, taking a strong role in the shaping of the text, even though it was written in French. The composer returned to Italy to write the music, and while he was there, another war erupted, this one between Italy and Austria. When France became involved, Verdi tried to use the war to get out of his contract. The opéra refused. Back in Paris, the rehearsals seemed to go on forever. Verdi felt the opera was endless. He had to make last-minute cuts so that the commuters could make the midnight trains to the suburbs. Then his father died in Italy and the composer stopped attending rehearsals and went into seclusion. The premiere had a mixed critical success. The big scenes between Philip and Rodrigo and between Philip and the Inquisitor challenged Verdi to find a way between recitative and melody 
that would have the force of dialogue while maintaining musical momentum. He wasn't entirely successful in Paris. Quite a bit of the opera would be recomposed for later productions. It's also true that bowing to some of the demands of the grand opera had made the first Don Carlos seem something of a patchwork. The long ballet over which Verdi slaved, and Rodrigo's death scene, carefully designed to show off the great French baritone foray, but long and old-fashioned, may have confused sophisticated listeners, given the more radical ideas in many scenes. Verdi began revising Don Carlos almost immediately. For various productions in Italy, he first got a rather loose Italian translation. Then he experimented with cutting the first of the five acts entirely, making other deep cuts, one of which became the lacrimosa movement of the Requiem, and he did a lot of rewriting. Finally, for a Bologna production, he settled on a shortened five-act version, without ballet. That is the version we usually hear today, with the Italian title Don Carlo, though the four-act version is also done a lot, and sometimes additions are made to the five-act version that we'll be hearing on our recording. Uh, from this point on, I'll use the Italian Don Carlo for the opera's title and the characters' names. Act two of the five-act version, act one of the four-act, has more relevance to the overall story. We are at the monastery of San Justo, in Spanish, the famous San Jerónimo de Juste, associated with the great emperor Charles V, Carlo's grandfather. He may or may not be a character in Don Carlo. In the opera, there is a mysterious monk who starts this act intoning about the horrors of earthly life and who reappears suddenly at the very end of the opera. There he is. Sound like a ghost to you? This comes from a rumor that the real Charles faked his own death, went to his funeral, and then retired to contemplate sin at San Jerónimo. Your guess is as good as mine. All that is known for sure is that Charles V did abdicate in favor of his son, Philip. In any case, the tomb of Charles V, empty or not, dominates the scene, and this monk sets the bleak, doomed mood of much that is to follow. Carlo enters, distraught, as he will be through most of the opera. Elisabetta, now officially his mother, and Philip are due here momentarily to pay homage to the great Charles V and then to relax in the gardens later. He has been unable to forget her. He can't simply remember their love as a happy dream. It is an ulcer throbbing in his system. The monk declaims about resignation and prayer. Carlo is chilled by the resemblance of this voice to his supposedly dead grandfather. But another character enters. Oh 
correr con lo de y fa This is Rodrigo, the Marquis of Poza. In Schiller's play and in the French version, it is made clear that Rodrigo isn't spying on Carlo and that this is an official visit. In this version of the opera, Rodrigo and Carlo embrace immediately, and Rodrigo mentions Fiandra, Flanders, or the Netherlands. The Netherlands is a Spanish colony, but Protestant. As a result of rebellion, there has been a reign of terror by the Spaniards, Rodrigo has made freedom there his cause and is at court to see if he can at least soften the inhumane aspects of the Spanish occupying forces. He is especially concerned about religious persecution. But he sees Carlo is distracted. Carlo confesses he is in love with the queen. Rodrigo is shocked at first, but urges Carlo to take comfort in the noble cause of the Flemish. He and Carlo sing a duet of eternal friendship. Dio che nell'alma infondere, as it's called in Italian. But soon the procession of the king and queen enters to pay homage to Charles V's tomb. Carlo literally staggers at seeing Elisabetta again. Rodrigo steadies him, and the monk proclaims the emptiness of worldly feelings. The scene changes to a garden at San Giusto. The queen's ladies are there killing time. For only two have been allowed to accompany the queen into the monastery. One of those is the Countess d'Arenberg, the queen's close friend and confidant who she has brought from France. The ladies are bored. Princess Eboli sweeps in. She is in the Queen's train, uh, for reasons of her own. In history, she wore an eye patch, collected art, and male scalps. Uh, not necessarily in that order. 
She was also one of the rare women at the time acclaimed for her horsemanship, that's how she damaged that eye, and her dueling. Eboli's first aria, called The Song of the Veil, was put there to delight the Parisians and show off the new singer. It is in a mock Moorish style, all that coloratura, and has a catchy tune Offenbach himself might have envied. The page Tabaldo joins her in the refrain of this aria. The story of this aria is about a jealous Moorish king who decides to come on to a veiled lady in his garden, only to find out she's his wife. It has some parallels with the story of Don Carlo, but this vocalese back into the second statement of the refrain might have been more to the point for the first audience. The queen enters with the Countess of Aremberg. Everyone remarks on the queen's sadness. Rodrigo also arrives, bows to the queen, and says he comes from France with a letter from her mother. He even shows the official seal to all, but in giving the letter to Elisabetta, he slips in a note from Carlo. The note from Carlo for the queen begs her for an audience. Elisabetta is simply moved by the notion of Don Carlo in his name but she hesitates to see him. She turns to Rodrigo, though, and requests he asks her a favor for his kindness. He asks that she see Carlo alone. Rodrigo has flattered Ebelisso outrageously, 
that she assumes that since he is only stating the obvious about her charms, he is softening her up for someone else. Don Carlo. Why else would he want to see the queen but to ask her blessing to pursue Evely? She urges the queen to grant this request. Elisabetta does, asking that everyone leave. Everyone, including the Countess of Aremberg, who the king has explicitly commanded to be with his wife at all times. Carlo enters, and at first tries to be calm, asking the queen to intercede for him with the king to be sent to Flanders. Graciously, Elisabetta calls him Mio figlio, my son. Carlo cannot bear to be addressed that way by the woman he loves. Elisabetta chooses to ignore his outburst. She will ask the king to grant his request. Carlo is stunned that she has nothing more to say to him. He confronts her, but she rebukes him for not understanding her noble silence, as she calls it. It does not mean she is indifferent. he can only think and obsess about their moment of perfect love. She agrees, but feels she must bid him farewell on this earth. Carlo is so transported by her admission of love, he falls into a faint at her feet. She bends over him, and he comes too in her arms. He knows a moment of bliss and starts to make love to her. She can hardly restrain herself from responding, but she turns away. In a frenzy, he cries out he will have her love, no matter the consequences. Suddenly stern, she outlines those consequences— he will have to kill his father and disgrace her. Horrified by that, Carlo races off stage, leaving her to thank God she did not succumb to temptation. Unfortunately, she gets no earthly reward. The page to Baldo barely has time to run on and announce the king, when the king is striding on demanding to know why the queen has been left alone. The court runs in after him. He tells the Countess of Aremberg to come forward and brutally dismisses her, sending her into exile back in France. The Countess bursts into tears, and the court mutters about the king's apparently pointless discourtesy to his young wife. Elisabetta comforts the Countess and helps her off stage. The court retires except for the king. As Rodrigo is leaving, the king summons him back. This next long scene between King and Marquis cost Verdi a great deal of work, but it is one of the most powerful scenes he wrote. 
The king is surprised that Rodrigo, a noble, a war hero, has not sought his presence to ask for favor. Rodrigo answers he wants nothing but for Spain to be great. As for favors from the king, he would never plead for himself, but for others. The king's interest is piqued by the bravery and eccentricity of this man, and he agrees to listen. Rodrigo pleads for the king to extend his mercy to Flanders, where brutality reigns in his name. Philip insists force is the only way for his rule to flourish after all. He has also ruled Spain with the same iron hand, and what has worked in Spain will breed peace in Flanders. Rodrigo bursts out, a horrible peace, the peace of the grave. O king, would you have history say of you, ei funeron, there was a Nero. The king stands in icy fury. But Rodrigo presses his case. Philip must be a second redeemer for the entire world. He must grant liberty over the globe. Rodrigo is chilled by the warning. Philip asks him again if there is nothing he wants. Rodrigo says there is nothing. But Philip wants something of him. The king is consumed by suspicion of his son and of his wife. He wants Rodrigo to spy on them, but hopes Rodrigo will find nothing. Rodrigo is overjoyed. He will have free access to both the queen and to Carlo. He feels he can protect them from intrigue, while at the same time furthering his plans to free Flanders. The king leaves with a final warning. Be careful of the Grand Inquisitor. Act three of the five-act version is in two scenes. The first is in the palace gardens. Initially, there had been a scene at a costume ball given by the queen. Elizabeth and Eboli, for the fun of it, decided to change costumes to see who they could fool. Verdi cut that scene, but the lack of it leaves what transpires now unclear. Carlo enters, and so does the queen, or so he thinks. It's at least a lady wearing her costume. He pours out his love. The lady responds and lifts her veil for a kiss, but Carlo blurts out, You are not the queen. Eboli is shocked. At first she is conciliatory. She tells him more calmly how much she loves him and warns him he is surrounded by danger. Even his best friend, Rodrigo, reports to the king. But she can save him. He must love her and let her. Carlo tries to let her down easily and sweetly, but that inflames her. You are the queen's lover, she cries. At that moment, Rodrigo, uh, who it must be said always seems to be lurking, bursts out to try once again and save Carlo from his own impulsiveness. But now Eboli is beside herself. 
She tells Rodrigo she knows of his access to the king, but she has access too, and that will make her his worst enemy. Meanwhile, she is astounded that the queen fooled her. Here she thought Elisabetta was a saint, but in fact, she's brazen in her love for Carlo. Rodrigo draws his dagger to kill her then and there. Carlo stops him. Eberly cries out for vengeance while the two men can only lament a very foolish mistake. Eboli rushes off, but Rodrigo asks Carlo to give him his documents, those that might be secret or incriminating, so he can guard them. Carlo, bothered by Eboli's revelation, hesitates, saying, But you are the intimate of the king. Rodrigo is so taken aback by Carlo's suspicion that Carlo immediately relents, agreeing to give him the papers, and once again they swear eternal friendship. Scene two of Act Three is the auto da fe scene required by the Paris Opera. In our version, it is without the ballet. An auto da fe was a rite where heretics were burned alive in a public square. The thinking of the Grand Inquisitors was that being burned alive in Jesus' name sent these sinners to heaven and exalted those who witnessed their agony. The entire court will participate in this public burning. Verdi used this scene as a rough draft for the triumphal scene in Aida, where everything works rather better. In Don Carlo, as in Aida, there is the large public crowd having a holiday, followed immediately by the grim priests, only interested in blood. court enters to a march, uh, not a triumphal one this time. A herald presents Philip and Elisabetta, who are in state. Eboli and Rodrigo are in their trains. The crowd acclaims Philip, but Don Carlo suddenly comes on with a group of men. He announces these are ambassadors from Flanders come to beg for mercy in public. Just as Rodimus ushers on the prisoners in Aida, and they beg for mercy, a noble tune builds to a big ensemble that involves everybody.
Philip is enraged. Flanders is in rebellion against him, and these must be traitors. The priests agree. The crowd joins with the Flemish ambassadors. Carlo makes everything worse. He demands to be sent to Flanders. Philip mocks him. Better to commit suicide right then and there than empower an assassin. Enraged, Carlo draws his sword, crying out he will be the redeemer of the Flemish people. Everyone is horrified. Carlo has drawn a sword on the king, his father. Philip orders Carlo disarmed at once, but no one dares. Carlo taunts the guards. Philip's voice rises in rage, but still no one dare confront the heir to the throne. Suddenly, Rodrigo steps forward and demands Carlo's sword as the theme of their friendship sounds. Everyone is shocked, but their bond is so strong that Carlo gives Rodrigo his sword. Marquis, you are now a duke. The king has crowed to Rodrigo, and Carlo is ushered off to prison. Philip orders the burnings to start. As they do, a voice from above calls to those suffering at the stake, promising them peace in heaven. Acts 4 and 5 of Don Carlo are probably the most Shakespearean in Verdi. The acts are dominated by three great monologues, remarkable for their inwardness and complexity. Philip, Eboli, and at the start of Act 5, Elisabetta, each have their moments of transcendence and emotional richness. Act 4 also has the great confrontation between Philip and the Grand Inquisitor. Like the scene between Philip and Rodrigo earlier, a remarkably original and powerful musical dramatic conception. And finally, in the two arias Rodrigo sings to Carlo, we have what was even then an old-fashioned eloquence and beauty. Some argued that Rodrigo was unnecessary in the opera, but Verdi seems to be using music to suggest a nobility and virile sweetness that was no longer possible. These astonishing musical riches start with Philip's great monologue, Ella Jamai Mamo, She Never Loved Me. In scene one of Act Four, we are in Philip's private quarters. In the long introduction, the orchestra paints his soul. There are sobs on bassoon, horns, and strings, while a solo cello conveys Philip's obsessive grief. He is spending a sleepless night lamenting what he perceives as Elisabetta's indifference and his own aging into a soulless sufferer, monotonously spending his nights mourning the acts of his days. I shall only sleep in my tomb, he says. He ponders the apparent betrayal of his own son, his loneliness, and the duplicity around him. If only my crown allowed me to be like God and read the truth of men's hearts, he cries. But he obsessively returns to his lovelessness and the fact his wife's heart is closed to him.
The Grand Inquisitor is announced and enters to that unforgettable theme. Given its color by weighty chords for trombone, tuba, and with punctuation by muted timpani. The Grand Inquisitor is 90 and blind. He is led by two Dominican friars. Philip has summoned him to talk of Carlo. At first, their conversation is merely sinister. Can I sacrifice my own son for my kingdom? asks Philip. God did, replies the Inquisitor. He conveys that anything Philip decides to do with Carlo, no matter how dire, will be approved by the church. Philip dismisses the ancient priest, but he refuses to leave. The Grand Inquisitor has come not because he is concerned about Carlo, but because the king has a crueler and more dangerous serpent at his breast, the Marquis of Posa. The Inquisitor demands Posa's life. Philip refuses ferociously. The French text at this moment is more brutal on the part of the king. His words are softer in Italian. Basically, he tells the old man to shut up, but the Inquisitor will not, nor will he leave. Brutally, he reminds Philip how much his throne owes to the church and how easily the church can crush him. Having made his point, the Inquisitor signals to be let out. Philip, understanding he has no choice, agrees by asking for peace with the old priest. Forse, replies the Inquisitor, maybe, as he vanishes. Peace can only come with Posa's death, and if there's no successor to Posa. Elisabetta runs in, angry, demanding justizia, justice. Her jewel case has been stolen. Which case? asks Philip. This one? Elisabetta is shocked to see that he has it. With cold courtesy, he asks her to open it. She refuses. Well, then I'll open it for you, he says. Inside is the picture of Carlo that Carlo gave her long ago in France. Philip sees this as proof of her adultery. Elisabetta defends herself. It was Philip himself who asked for her hand for his son. They met, they fell in love. But she did her duty, married Philip, and has been faithful. Philip doesn't believe her and promises her blood will flow. I pity you, she cries. Ah! The pity of an adulteress, he barks. Elizabeth faints. Philip calls for help, and Eboli and Rodrigo rush in. Eboli is horrified by what she sees, and Rodrigo delivers a dignified rebuke to the king. In the quartet that follows, Philip admits his cruelty. Eboli, expressing her remorse, revives the sorrowing Elizabetta, and Rodrigo realizes that his hopes have been dashed.
and Rodrigo leave. Eboli throws herself at Elisabetta's feet, crying, Pietà, have pity. Elisabetta is puzzled, but quickly Eboli explains, it was she who stole the jewel box and told the king that Elisabetta was Carlo's mistress. It was out of love for Carlo who rejected her. Elisabetta reaches out for Eboli, but the princess cannot meet her eye. She has something worse to confess. She has bidden the king's mistress, committing the same sin of which she accused the queen. Numbed, Elisabetta exiles Eboli into a convent and leaves. Eboli cries out her grief. <laughs> That is the beginning of Eboli's great monologue, Odon Fatale, O Fatal Gift of Beauty. Eboli curses the allure that has brought her into lovelessness and made her betray the good woman she had come to love. But she can do some good, perhaps. On the king's desk, she sees a death warrant for Don Carlo, and she determines to go to his prison and help him escape. Eboli runs out. In this remarkable aria, Verdi condenses into one tight span what even a few years earlier would have been a long three-section scene. There is a tight recitative, odon fatale, then a flowing of those short middle section where Eboli realizes the queen's goodness and sincerity, and finally a wild affirmation of a good deed that is still left her. That would have been a cabaletta in the old days. Now there is some complexity here. In Schiller, and to some degree in the original French version of the opera, it is clear that Eboli has seduced the king on orders from the Holy Office, that is, the Grand Inquisitor. Their representative is an evil friar named Domingo, someone different from the tenor in our performance on tape. He convinces Eboli that she is absolved in advance for sex with the lonely king, from whom she can get information and that she must also steal the queen's jewel case and give it to the king. Furious over Carlo's rejection, and as ambitious as the next one-eyed princess, Eboli goes ahead only to regret her action. In the Italian version of the opera, none of this is really clear. One can assume that the affair of Eboli and Philip was sometime in the past, though that makes no sense given Elisabetta's strong reaction. But as often happens in opera, Verdi counted on the sweep of his wonderful music and his thrilling theatrical sense to move a listener before too many questions can be asked. Scene two of Act Four takes place in Carlo's prison. Rodrigo visits to comfort him and sings another beautiful aria, bidding Carlo farewell, for he is sure his final day has come. He has no doubt that Carlo will be released from prison once he, Rodrigo, is dead. Carlo refuses to believe him, 
But Rodrigo reminds Carlo of those documents he took from him. Rodrigo has arranged for them to be found in his possession, and just at that moment Rodrigo is shot by a shadowy assassin. The vengeance of the king could not be delayed, remarks Rodrigo. As the theme of their friendship sneaks in, Rodrigo tells Carlo that the queen awaits him at dawn tomorrow at San Justo. He asks for Carlo's hand and says he is happy to die close to Carlo. He begs Carlo not to forget him. His last words, though, are salva la fiandra, save Flanders. The king enters with grandees and returns Carlo's sword to him. Carlo accuses his father of Rodrigo's death, and the king is grief-stricken to see the body. But a huge riot breaks out. The people have risen up. They are about to attack Carlo when the Grand Inquisitor appears and frightens them into obedience. Eboli, disguised as a boy, rushes Carlo out. Act 5, we are back at the monastery of San Justo. We hear again the mournful theme of that monastery. Elisabetta is alone, waiting to bid Carlo a final farewell. She is praying in front of the tomb of Charles V. Her anguish is expressed in this rich and grand orchestral introduction. She has a magnificent soliloquy, tu quelle vanita, you, and she means Carlo V, who may or may not have faked his death, you who knew the vanity of the world and enjoy in your tomb deep repose, pray for me. But soon her thoughts turn to France and her first meeting with Carlo at Fontainebleau. She remembers her youth, her hopes, and now can only pray for death. Carlo arrives. He and Elisabetta are dignified and formal with one another. 
They think of the dead Rodrigo, and Cardolo vows to continue his work in Flanders. In a march-like section, he cries out he will be martyred fighting for freedom, and Elisabetta joins him in singing of the glory that will soon be his. But of course, their talk soon turns to their love for one another. Carlo has understood it can never be realized here on earth. Ma lassù ci vedremo, they sing. But above, we'll meet again in a better world, a world where having wept here, there will be no need for tears. They bid each other a final farewell as mother and son. Per sempre, forever. Yes, snarls Philip, per sempre, forever. He has arrived with guards and the Grand Inquisitor and orders Carlo arrested. Carlo fights them. But suddenly the mysterious monk appears. He is dressed in the regal robes of Charles V and he stands in front of Carlo, stopping the fighting. He thunders that strife will only end in heaven and pulls Carlo into the cloister, leaving the Inquisitor to cry out, Well, that was the voice of Charles. Mio padre, cries Philip, my father. That was Guild lecturer Albert Inarato discussing the history, music, and drama behind Verdi's epic tragedy, Don Carlo. For more information, visit metopera.org and make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, 
and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.